Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today at Hope and Anchor Church. Uh, I'm hoping you had a great week, and I hope everyone stays safe tonight. As Sam mentioned earlier, it's a kind of squirrely weather in the forecast, which, I don't know, it's hard to live in Missouri and not become a little bit jaded. Like, every time they tell you, it's like, the end is near. This is it, everyone. <laughs> you know, you know, kiss each other goodbye. You know, it doesn't ever really materialize usually. And then usually, then they're like, ah, it should be a mild storm front coming through and then that's what blows our houses away it's crazy so you live here long enough and you're like a little bit a little bit skeptical but anyway could be bad so be careful tonight uh, play it safe uh, my wife was clearing out the basement yesterday just in case uh, I, 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 I uh, dread the day we have to actually hide in the basement of our house it's like a dungeon anyway Hey, uh, today we are continuing in our Law and Prophets series, a teaching series, a learning adventure through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You remember we uh, spent some time in uh, the Beatitudes, the Beautiful Attitudes uh, series, and then we uh, spent some time in Jesus' uh, teachings on prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Well, now we're just kind of filling in the blanks in Matthew, the, His Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's time well spent because in this we find Jesus' distilled teachings, the common themes He would return to when He taught during His three years of ministry um, when He was with us. Um, so today is week number four, and today's message is called A Great Year in Purple. So um, I've mentioned before that I'm kind of a student of humans. I kind of watch people. I get to interact with and kind of observe things about humans. And here's one thing I've noticed. Uh, we like to keep things simple. Okay? Uh, Occam's razor runs strong in us. We like to keep it simple. We like the simplest explanation. We like the simplest solution. We like to just keep it simple. Sometimes we just don't like to get tangled up in all those details, right? Given a choice between pressing in to grasp the underlying principles of a concept or just shooting for a passing grade, <laughs> what do you do? Perhaps reflect on your time in school. Did you really press in to understand the deeper concepts, the underlying principles, or were you really just looking at passing the class or passing the test? You know, for me, most days, if the letter of the law and the spirit of the law were to get in a fist fight in my front yard, I think I know where I'd put my money. I think we default. We gravitate toward the letter of the law because sometimes the spirit of the law, it's hard. <laughs> it's just, it's challenging. It requires a lot more of us than just following the rules, right? Unless we are compelled by pain or by pleasure, we don't typically seek to master understanding of the why. We don't just of our own volition say, man, I want to know this. I want to I really move toward mastery of this concept, of these underlying principles. I want to understand why, the why behind all these things that are being asked of me. At the end of the day, I mean, because we're busy, right? We can't give ourselves 100% to everything in our life, right? But at the end of the day, it's easier just to fall in line. It's easier to go with the flow, to, to really just do the minimum required, to work through the checklist and just be seen as following the rules, right? It's in us, right? Especially if it's not something that you're thinking about, like, you know, that, that you're keeping central in your day-to-day -day life. 
This is the case in our civic life. This is the case in our social life sometimes. And this is really often the case in our spiritual life, isn't it? We just want to do what's required. We want to hit the basic marks and like, hey, that's good. We're, we're good, right? God, we're good. I, you know, I prayed the prayer. I walked the I got baptized even. What? I even gave 20 in the offering plate. I'm good, right? We want to know that we're doing just enough to get in. The problem is, though, if we're going through life just simply checking the boxes, uh, going through life just obeying the letter of the law, we can miss the point. And worse yet, we can make some serious errors. And this is nowhere more true than in our life with God. We can miss the point, and we can actually end up making serious errors if we're just working the checklist, just living by the letter of the law instead of pressing in to, to understand and live according to the spirit of the law. So in preparation for this message, uh, I spent some time on Google. I googled uh, times when people took instructions too literally. Has anyone ever googled that? Right? Um, seeking to find examples of times when people just followed instructions without thinking, without ever asking why. Why is it, why is it that way? I've got some pictures here. Um, can you guys bring up that first picture of, uh, that we're talking about? You got some pictures up there for me? There we go. Uh, someone apparently ordered a cake here. I want a chocolate cake that says, thanks for a great year, in purple. So the baker, not asking good follow-on questions, produces for them a chocolate cake, which is accurate, that says, thanks for a great year in purple. That's funny. That's really funny. What's, what's next? Uh, I've got some other ones. Uh, this person ordered two cakes and wanted happy birthday on both. And so both of them say happy birthday on both. The icing says, happy birthday on both. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to meet this baker. Uh, what's next? I've got, I've got a couple more here. Uh, so there's a sign that says, no bicycle riding, rollerblading, roller skating, skateboarding, or scooter riding. So clearly, unicycling is okay. <laughs> this guy's like, well, I went down the checklist and said nothing about unicycles. So there we are, unicycling. And next, kind of in the similar, a similar vein, uh, there's a sign on this next one. Roll tape. All right, no bicycle parking. Maybe it's the same guy. He's like, well, I'm good, because I'm not riding a bicycle. I'm riding a unicycle. One wheel, right? You get it. We laugh, but we understand. I mean, I don't know if you've ever got the cake with a great ear in purple, but we know that stuff kind of happens. Now, to be honest, it's not just bakers, and it's not just unicyclists that we need to watch out for. <laughs> We all do this kind of stuff. We all have an inclination to do the bare minimum. We have the inclination to offer mere compliance and just follow the rules without thinking or without asking. As a further example of this, how else can you explain the ways that even your name perhaps has been mangled by a Starbucks barista? I mean, really. So routinely and so inexplicably, your rather normal, mundane name gets just butchered by the Starbucks barista. Let's look here. I said my name was Mark with a C, and they wrote Kark. <laughs> Who does this? And my favorite of all is this next one. <laughs> my name is Barbara, and they write Marbra. Marbra. Has there anyone who's ever, tr is there one person who has trod our planet? 
named Marbra. <laughs> what prevents the Starbucks barista from asking for clarification? What, what prevents so-and-so working behind the counter in the green apron from just saying, actually, excuse me, what keeps them from asking, is your name Mark or, or is it Barbara? Here's the answer, nothing. Nothing is keeping them from asking. <laughs> nothing is keeping them from asking you, is it Kark? Is it Marbra? No, nothing except for pure, unadulterated laziness. Really, that's it. It's not in their handbook. It's not in their policies. It's just laziness. They don't want to know. They don't want to know. They just heard you say something, and phonetically, they're going to write it on the cup. Come hell or high water, you're getting to be called Kark or Marbra. <laughs> this is one of the many reasons, guys, that we need Jesus. <laughs> I mean, maybe you've never been a Starbucks barista, maybe you've never been a unicyclist or a baker, but we've all been human, and uh, we all just mail it in sometimes. Sometimes you just want to don't want to know, we just want to get the job done. Jesus needs to come and awaken us. He needs to help our baristas here and to care. He needs to come and enlarge in our spiritual imagination. He needs to provoke us, provoke us beyond our natural lethargy. Jesus needs to come and motivate us to grow and become. Jesus needs to come to help us press further in so that we might understand the why. That we might understand the why in the life with God. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes valuable time. And I think that's important. There's the things in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, and we need to pay attention to those. But then there's also that kind of uh, other stuff that's going on with his body language, with his... Uh, content. I mean, it's important to say, hey, what did Jesus take time to make sure we heard him say? Why is Jesus focusing on this? Because that's some of the important stuff that we got to get to, right? He took valuable time to challenge our thinking, or to our lack of thinking, actually, when it comes to our actions and our attitude. I'm glad, too. I'm glad that Jesus did this. Because here's what I think. People then, just like now, are largely content to read through the law and simply do what it says to do and not do what it says not to do, and that's pretty much it. We're just content to say, well, that's good. All right, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Okay, I'm good. We do our part, God does his part, we're all good, and everyone's happy. Right? I mean, at the baseline, that's just what we want to make sure is happening, right? God's happy, I'm happy, we're good. But here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus announcing that God is not looking for a certain kind of behavior. God is not looking for a certain kind of behavior. He's looking for a certain kind of person. I mean, you run into this with Jesus so many times, like, hey, God is looking at you. Not your acts of righteousness. Not what you do or don't do. He's looking at you. He's looking right at your heart. The seat of your motivation. He's looking at you. God is looking for a certain kind of behavior. Not, uh, he's not looking for a certain kind of behavior. He's looking for a certain kind of person. Let's visit Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And hear Jesus' words here. The section you're turning to might have at the top teaching about anger. And we get there, but it's talking about 
our participation in the life with God. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, which in your Bible it might say raka, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse, curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer, officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. So as I mentioned, Scripture mentions in various places that God does not look at outward appearances. God looks instead at the heart. God looks right past the do's and don'ts into our heart attitudes. He is searching for a heart of true obedience. A heart that is actually set on obeying, glorifying, and honoring Him. Jesus is dismantling our lazy assumptions. And man, I've got lazy assumptions. Do you? I mean, Jesus comes and He finds it necessary. And if He finds something necessary, we should pay attention, right? He's coming to dismantle our lazy assumptions that the simple absence of bad behavior is the standard God is looking for. Basically, what God's looking for is for you not to be doing bad stuff. He doesn't want you to murder people. Have you murdered people? No, you've not murdered? Okay, thumbs up. You're good. But Jesus comes and He dismantles that lazy assumption. It's not just you not doing bad behavior. It's actually what's going on in your heart. Jesus blows things up, elevates them by saying that anger and hating someone, which is the root of murder, right? They are just as wicked as actually killing somebody. And that's shocking, really. We've heard it for so long. If you've been in church since you were a kid, you've heard this a lot, but it's just like, what? Harboring anger and hatred in my heart, that's just as wicked and evil as me actually raising my hand to kill somebody, murder somebody. Most people listening to Jesus that day, here's the, here's the deal. Most people listening to Jesus that day assumed that they were good. Why? Because most of the people around Jesus that day had not done what? They had not murdered anybody. It's like the kids up here today. Very few of these kids have murdered anyone. <laughs> and when Kelly asked, most of them were truthful and like, no, I've not, not done that. I've not murdered. I'm not murdered. Well, likewise, most of the people around Jesus that day assumed that they were good because they'd never murdered anyone because they had stayed in line when it came to compliance with the law of Moses. Well, I've not done that. I've not murdered anybody. I've not divorced anybody. I'm good, right? So, as Jesus declares verse 21, they're all nodding in agreement as church people do. Probably some were going, mm, mm-hmm. You know, like church people. You know, like, yes, yes, bless him. Good. Yeah, verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. I'm good. But then Jesus rolls right into verse 22 and says that anger is just as corrosive, just as dangerous, uh, and it deserves the same punishment from God as murder 
But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Gulp. You can just hear the collective gulp on the hillside there like, oh no. Oh no. I've called people idiot. I've cursed people. I've been angry. I've been hateful. I've wished ill upon others. Oh, no. Harboring a heart of anger and of hatred toward another person, wishing another person dead, regarding them as a fool, despising them as a person, is to despise the very image of God in that person. And it's that that you are wishing dead. Do you see how this is kind of, this has gravity to it? It's like you are hating a person beloved by God that bears his image, and it's that that you're at, at the end of the day saying, You're a fool. I hate you. You're an idiot. I wish you were dead. Yikes. How dare we say that to someone that was made by God, is loved by God, and at some level, even though it may be wildly obscured, they bear the image of God. In a very real way, Jesus says that murdering someone in your heart and in your mind and in your attitude is spiritually equivalent to murdering them in the flesh. Is that a hard teaching? I mean, some of you here would say, man, I really struggle with this. I struggle with anger. I struggle with really a, a murderous attitude towards someone in my heart because you've been through a lot. You've been through stuff that was so unfair so painful, so tragic, that it's really hard to let go. It's hard for you not to think of this person and just a black shadow falls over your mind. Like, oh, that person. Man, I love Jesus, but this person, they so richly deserve to pay. Man, some of us really struggle with that. And I think this, guys, is why Jesus wants to take time to help us move to a better place, a deeper understanding. This is startling. But guess what? If you're startled by this teaching of Jesus, you are in good company. You're in good company. People have been shocked, startled by this same teaching for 2,000 years. This is a hard teaching. Let's, let's let N.T. Wright further unpack this idea for us. He does a good job here. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the commands of the law and shows how they provide a blueprint for a way of being fully, genuinely, and gloriously human. This new way, which Jesus has come to pioneer and make possible, goes deep down into the roots of personality and produces a different pattern of behavior altogether. Listen to this. It begins with smoldering anger against someone very close to you. All right, it may not result in murder, but the point of the commandment against murder was not that you should stop short of killing someone, but that you should never even get near the thought that you wish they were dead. What judgment will you incur, in verse 22, God's judgment, clearly, but, but that isn't arbitrary punishment that will catch up with you eventually, but rather a judgment that will begin right now. Every time you decide to let your anger smolder on inside of you, you are becoming a little less than fully human. You are deciding to belittle yourself. 
When you start to let that simmer and smolder and just kind of roll on inside of you, every time you do that, you become a little less than fully human. You're deciding to belittle yourself. Of course, if you let your anger turn into foul and abusive language, sooner or later you may find yourself in court. And if you are the sort of person who sneers at everybody and calls them names, the fire inside of you may eventually become all that is left of you as Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump outside of ancient Jerusalem. It may take you over completely. Now, I pray this isn't you, but maybe you've known somebody that was just so consumed by anger, so devoured by long-simmering hatred, that it's really changed who they were. It's almost consumed them. It's like they're a prisoner now. And there's a punishment that they're experiencing day to day by the missing out on the life God has for them. Man, that's tragic, isn't it? And I think that's what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus' warning about the dangers of unrestrained anger must have been a theme of his ministry. Why? Because his disciples talk about it too. This is a teaching that shows up in their writings in the New Testament as well. In the Apostle John's uh, first letter, he expounds on our call to love one another and also to shun hatred. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 11 through 15, it says, This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life within them. Ooh, that's so powerful. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. The same spirit of Cain, it's in us. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. And that's a stout teaching. And John picked up on it too. John is not saying anything new here. He is only saying what he has heard from who? From Jesus. Those years spent following and listening to Jesus, taking in what he is saying, say, hey, live in this way. He's now passing it on to his disciples. He heard it from Jesus. Thus, John is joining with Jesus in calling the disciples, those other followers of Jesus, calling us to a deeper engagement uh, in the life with God, involving our whole being, our entire person, body and mind, not just in behaviors and actions, but in actually who we are. How does that make you feel? That he's not calling for us to just think certain ways or, or even just behave certain ways. He's actually calling us to become a certain kind of person. Involving our whole being, body, mind, and soul. Now this can be hard because it requires something of us. It requires the intentional daily pursuit of Christian maturity. And the pursuit of Christian maturity requires something we don't really like sometimes. Discipline. Discipline. The intentional forming of good 
life-giving habits, cultivation of spiritual fruit, especially that one that comes at the end of the list that Paul gives us, right? Does anyone know what the last spiritual fruit that, or the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists lasts on purpose maybe? Self-control, mastery of ourselves, control of our base appetites and our impulses, self-control. N.T. Wright goes on uncomfortably to point out, if part, of a, if, you, if part of human maturity is learning how to recognize your anger and to deal with it before it gets out of control, we have to conclude that most of us are not very mature. And that feels like an insult, but I think he's just saying something very true, that we follow Jesus, we do the stuff, we go to church, we read our Bible, we pray, we do that stuff, but man, when we get bumped... When we get frustrated, we get something taken from us, we get something uh, uh, unfairly dropped on us, man, what rises up within you? What's spilling out of you when you're actually pushed, when you're actually frustrated? Man, for some of us, it's anger. And maybe you've been shocked by that. You've been shocked by that. Like when it became an intense moment of of disappointment, of hurt, of frustration. Man, it was just there like a volcano blasting out of you. I remember one time, this is not, oh man, I get nervous about this. Um, one time we lived in Texas, and that made me angry. <laughs> so I say all that to say, <laughs> no, one time the kids were playing in the driveway. You remember this story? Yeah, I cussed. Um, and the kids were playing, and we had an automatic garage door opener, and um, you know how they go up and down on their own when you push the button. Well, one of the kids, I'm going to say the neighbors, turned the little locking handle on the outside of our garage door, and I didn't know this, and we were in a hurry. We were trying to jump in the van and go somewhere. I run out through the, the garage, hit the button, and... Uh, Oh, no, no, we're, we're opening it to leave, actually. And that bar stuck through the rail because it's locked, right? So the automatic opener starts opening it. The thing goes completely diagonally. The cables spring off the, 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 the spools, and it's just like, we're late. We're trying to get somewhere. Our garage door's at like a 45-degree angle. And I had the most volcanic eruption of anger I've ever heard, ever discovered, ever witnessed in myself. I was shocked, but not so shocked as to tame my tongue because I said a bad word, <laughs> a very bad word, like not a PG-13 bad word. <laughs> And I stunned myself. I startled myself. I remember it to this day. I was horrified in retrospect. In the moment, I was just mad. But in retrospect, I was horrified that that was in me. Some kid playing in my driveway, which is a good thing, playing with my kids, a great thing, uh, locked our garage door. And that is what that was my undoing. If you could lose your salvation, <laughs> I would have lost my salvation in my driveway in Texas that day. I've repented, but it was bad, and it was in me. And that's just a, one example. Maybe you've had an example, too, where you were just like horrified, disgusted, <laughs> shocked, like, oh, no, out of the heart the mouth speaks? Crud, that's in me? Jesus, please come and continue this work. I need it. I need it. I don't even remember where I was in my notes after all that. Let's see. <laughs> Oh, yes, uh, discipline. Requires discipline and the cultivation of self-control. 
It is indeed hard to get ourselves under control. It is a, a, a lifelong endeavor to train our hearts in godliness, to discipline our minds to follow the spirit of Christ's law. Because in that moment in the driveway in Texas, God wasn't mad that I, I said that naughty word. I think what, what grieved God in that moment, what grieved Jesus and the Holy Spirit in that moment was that there was that much vitriolic just blah spewing forth from my heart. And he's just like, oh man, I've got some work to do. Adam, we've got some work to do in there. Did you notice that came out? It was lying dormant like silt on the bottom of a pond. But man, someone drops a broken garage door in the middle of it and it starts swirling and it's toxic. We got to get that out of there. Here's the thing. It's hard to get ourselves under control. It's a lifelong work. We have to discipline our minds to follow the spirit of Christ's law. But here's the thing. We know it's possible. Why? Because Jesus came to us. Jesus talked about it. And even more than that, Jesus showed us how. He showed us the way forward, how to do this. Let's look at verse 23 and 26, or to 26. So if you're presenting a sacrifice to the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your, ancestor, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the, an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Here in his teaching, Jesus is turning the corner. He's like answering that question like, well, so what do we do? He's giving us guidance on alternatives, how to work through, how to live differently in the midst of our anger and our murderous spirit. When we are confronted with situations that cause us anger, when we are, find ourselves in circumstances that want to uh, cause enmity toward others to rise up in our hearts, what are we to do? Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Don't let it linger. Go and seek reconciliation. Get it out in the open so that it might be healed and worked through. So go and be reconciled. And secondly, do whatever it takes to make peace. So go and be reconciled and do whatever it takes to make peace. Now, here's the thing at the heart of this. Willingness to forgive, willingness to make amends and to seek reconciliation is directly connected to our ability to worship. Oh, no. Why does Jesus have to go this far? Why does he have to do this? That Our willingness to go and seek to make amends and reconciliation is directly correct, connected to our ability to actually enter into the presence of God and worship Him and then receive forgiveness from Him. Oh, man. Why, Jesus? Why do you do that? So here's what we need to know. We must be willing to set aside the offense. As a Christ follower, we must be the ones that are intent on getting first to that place where we're willing to set aside the offense. We're the ones who are first willing to make the step toward reconciliation. We are the first to own up to our wrongs. We are the ones most committed as Christ followers to prioritizing peacemaking in our daily lives. Why? Because it has stunning ramifications in our life with God, not just our life with others, but our life with God. Not just ramifications in the type of person you're becoming, but actually in your life with God. And taking it further, Jesus teaches that we are to be assertive in settling our differences. 
not letting things linger, not letting them calcify and harden. We must not let things linger. We must be assertive in settling our differences before things escalate and before things get out of control because things get out of control. Things don't always get better when you let them linger. They just kind of metastasize. They get uglier. They become more toxic and damaging. So, and this is where the maturity comes in. You have to hear me say, guys, it's up to you. In following after Jesus, it's up to us to check our hearts. It's up to us to do whatever it takes to root out that anger and that hatred. It's up to us to be the first that are willing to go, to be intentional and persistent in that work of peacemaking and of reconciliation. Now, you might be asking, will that be easy? Mm. You might not like my answers here. <laughs> will it be easy? Will you enjoy it? Will you like it? Will it feel like eating crow? Will it feel like going like, ah, oh, I hate bringing this up. Will, you, will it be easy? Will you like it? Will it resolve everything? Will it repair all the damage done? Will it be telling the other person that what you did is okay? Or what I did is okay? Will your anger, will your rage, and will your hurt, will it just float away? I think the answer to all those questions is no. Probably not. Sometimes no. Not always, and not quickly sometimes. But that can't be the reason why we decide to do the right thing. Okay, can you hear me say that? I mean, even if it's not going to bring about an easy or quick resolution to the, the break, or the trauma, or the, the grossness that took place, what matters is that you took that first step, and that you laid yourself out there and said, hey, I want forgiveness, I want for reconciliation, I want to make peace to whatever degree is possible here so that we can move forward as healthy, whole human beings. And that we can worship God and we can love Him rightly. Here's the thing, in the midst of all this, even though all these things won't be fixed, all these broken places won't be tied up with a nice bow on top, Jesus promises that our hearts will become a better place if we do it. If we intentionally seek reconciliation, peacemaking, we take that first step to make it right, to make amends, our hearts start to heal. Our hearts become a better place. Better yet, God can then affect change in us. We are then freed up to, to, to see God come and help us grow. Grow, become, learn from the experience. And that is so much better Guys, at the end of the day, a healed heart is worth it. A healed heart is far better than a hateful heart. I want a healed heart. I mean, we live on a painful planet. We engage in risky relationships with other people that can do some really ugly stuff to us. But setting our intention on a healed heart, Jesus, heal my heart, Heal my heart of the pain, but also heal it of the hatred, the anger that can so often infect it. A healed heart instead of a hateful heart. I love how insightful Jesus is in this passage. I mean, really, if you think about it, how much Jesus understands here. I love how insightful Jesus is and how careful He is with us, how careful He is with our souls. You can't read this passage to get the sense that Jesus doesn't know us and He doesn't care about us. He loves us. He's tender with us. 
He's intimately and infinitely aware of what lurks inside of us and what can so easily come and hijack our worship. And he gently, Jesus gently, over and over again, he guides us, coaxes us toward the path of freedom. And that's what he is offering us here today. Just like he was offering on that hillside in Matthew, he's offering us today if we will only listen to him and obey. Commit to living in that way. So I'll, I'll finish with this. Beware of the little baker and the little unicyclist and the little barista inside of you. We've got those, each of those characters inside of us. Move beyond the perfunctory letter of the law understanding and venture into that vibrant freedom that comes from embracing and living in the spirit of the law because it's the spirit of Christ's law that actually leads to life. It leads to healing, to wholeness. It leads to life. And thank Jesus for that. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for Jesus' kindness and his patience and his willingness to come and help us understand, to lay out before us uh, what matters most. God, sometimes we can uh, just settle into some pretty lazy assumptions, some just pretty rote thinking when it comes to re the religious life. But here Jesus is just really wanting to get our attention, and may we pay attention then. That there's something more going on. There's, a, there's greater depths for us, in for us in which we can enter. A life of obedience and of godliness. A life of worship and of freedom. God, I pray that we would stop settling for the letter of the law and just not murdering and not, not doing bad behaviors. But we would actually be aware of some of the, the thoughts, the beliefs, the attitudes, the lingering toxicity in our hearts. Hatred, anger enmity and that we would say hey Jesus following you is the most important thing my life with God is of utmost worth and it's worth anything to preserve that and to grow in that and I will do whatever it takes I'll take a first step I will go toward that person who I have a broken relationship with even that person that hurt me I will make constructive steps toward amends even if it can't be fixed, even if that's maybe not a safe person, I want to do whatever I can to be made whole. God, I pray that you'd do a work in each of us and uh, just point out the ways that we've just been uh, mailing it in, just kind of following the rules, just trying to keep you happy and keep us happy so that everyone's just good in the end. God, I pray that we'd press deeper, knowing that your Holy Spirit was sent and is with us so that we might be Come, become a different kind of person. A person in which uh, your life is being lived. That we're being shaped and molded in the likeness of Christ day by day through the challenges, through the hardships. We're developing Christian maturity. We're developing discipline. That the fruits of the Spirit are starting to bud and to, to blossom and to be reaped in our lives. God, help us in that area of self-control. Help us master ourselves for your glory, we ask. I know this is a hard teaching for some of us. We carry a lot of stuff with us. We feel like we have a lot of baggage, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger. And this is an opportunity we have today, right now, to sit with God and say, God, I need help. I need you to do some surgery in me. I need you to expose some things and help me.
point out those first steps. Where do I go? Where do I begin? It begins with prayer. And then God may direct you to go to someone that's a trusted friend that can go with you or can uh, support you, can bring godly counsel from Scripture in prayer. But the thing is, is don't let it stay the same. Okay? It's having an effect in you. And it shouldn't. And Jesus wants to heal you of that. And so I pray that we will take the next few moments to just sit with God. Say, God, search me and know me. Look inside of me. Look past my behavior. Look past the things I'm doing or not doing. Look at my heart. Help me see my life the way you see my life and how you see me in the world and in relationship and help me in that. Can we do that? We've got the next few minutes. So make the most of this opportunity.